Hello and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, episode 45. How are you doing, Zhao? I'm fine, Jay. It's always a pleasure. This one took a while to get up and running. Yep. Well, it sure did. And then also we have, um, or at least in my case, I have all things open coming up. Uh, that's going to probably slow us down one more time. But after that, everything should be pretty boring over the winter <laughs> as things normally are here in Michigan in the winter. It's very boring here. So yeah. there's going to be plenty of time for podcasting. Yep, I hope so that we can catch up. And we have some news to look back on the, the past couple of weeks, some interesting stuff that happened. Yep, we sure do. And we have a directive, or actually it's the ongoing saga of the White House security directive That's a, that's been somewhat of a recurring thread that we'll mention first. And then we have some Wi-Fi problems, and I'm not talking about the normal Wi-Fi problems where your walls are <laughs> fighting your ability to have Wi-Fi in every room yeah. or all these strange settings that just don't seem to work the way they should. No, we're talking about security in this podcast, so yeah. there's a security angle on that Wi-Fi thing, so we'll talk about that too. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with the first one. So um, a couple of days, weeks, depending on when you're listening to this, um, the White House made an announcement around the um, Strengthening America's Cybersecurity Initiative. Um, this is something that started when that uh, colonial pipeline incident happened and um, the people in government in the US decided to take a deeper look at cybersecurity and how it was handled and all of that. And that started a whole series of um, initiatives and um, laws and policies that got put into place and are being still being worked on. Um, but there have been some constant a constant stream of announcements around this um, they have announced some mandates around CISA that we've discussed in the past uh, how CISA is now showing a list of the commonly in use and being and vulnerabilities that are being exploited in the wild um, but other than that they came up they came out with a more expensive and broad initiative and out of the many things that it says there are a couple of um, interesting aspects to it um, the first one is that it finally, and I say finally because I've always seen countries struggle with this, cybersecurity is not, has never been and never will be solvable at the nation state level. No single country can fix cybersecurity on itself by a very simple reason. Um, the attacks don't start at the border and the attackers don't stop at the border. So um, there is always going to be a need for having some international cooperation, some international rules in place, something like, um, I mean, it's not impossible to come up with an international agreement around this. We've done this in the past when trade was endangered with the international maritime law and Basically, all the countries had a vested interest in making sure that stuff was moved around in a safe way and securely and couldn't be attacked just because. And with cybersecurity, we probably need something like that. And it's interesting to see that in this new initiative, at multiple points in this initiative, they mentioned that they are going to work, or at least try to work closer with allies and with NATO and as many countries as possible. This has a very large compounding effect. First off, it will make cybersecurity a priority, not just in the US, but also abroad to make sure that they can comply with anything that the US actually requires and is actually trying to implement. Because the state of cybersecurity in different countries is obviously different because of different economic levels, different um, importance levels given to it. I mean, there are places that have much more important things that they need to worry about before considering even cybersecurity as a priority. But 
without the rules, without the regulations, without some form of um, formalization of what you need to have in place, it's hard to achieve a, a goal or a standard if there is none to match. And so I believe this is a very good step in the right direction. Again, the devil might be in the details of how this gets implemented. If it's just something that comes out and say, okay, now you need to do this. Well, on the other side of the equation, okay, but why do I want to do that just because you say so? There has to be some give and take here. There has to be some some balancing of the scales so that it's not just something that's pushed out from the US to the rest of the world. And there's also some consensus reached around this. Um, and again, it, it has to be a very large group of nations that come together and agree on something like this. Having a common law framework, having a common set of ways for international law enforcement agencies to work together, exchange information, all of that. Um, because like I said before, um, the scales are usually very tipped towards the attackers, towards the malicious actors in the, in the cybersecurity landscape, because they don't have to comply with the law. So they're actually much more at ease, much more free to just do and attack wherever and whenever they want. When you're trying to prosecute someone, when you're trying to investigate something around this, it's harder because you have to follow the right procedures, you have to follow the law, you have to create evidence and make sure that the chain of custody is, is always maintained and all of that, that type of things. So this is a way to actually level the playing field a bit more. You almost make it sound like WWW should actually stand for a wild, wild west, because sometimes that's kind of like what it feels like with everyone doing whatever they're doing. And um, especially when it, I mean, when it comes to the IoT side of it, I know that's something that um, is a pain in our sides a lot. It's not just IoT and anyone who just makes any kind of embedded device. I mean, you I mean, phones, for example, I mean, the line is drawn there between a phone and an IoT device. But is it really different? And companies will just choose their own path as far as like how long they support it, the default password being password most of the time or something really easy like that. And and I wish that directives like this weren't necessary because all the companies are just doing the right thing and they just clearly don't. Um, obviously, when you talk about threat, threat actors, they're not going to do the right thing because then, then they wouldn't be threat actors, right? So um, there, there's all these different angles here and it's like we have to have some control and I feel like, yeah, this is a step in the right direction for sure. I mean, right now you could buy a phone that could be supported for four or five years or maybe like half a year, depending on which one you go with, right? And IoT devices are probably not going to be supported um, for that long because it's a minimal everything. And then, you know, threat actors, they love this stuff because as soon as something goes unsupported, it's a free for all. It's actually interesting that you mention IoT because another of the interesting aspects in this initiative by the White House is the the concept of a label, like the food labels that describes the ingredients and the nutrients and whatever. Um, they want to implement something like a, a label of that type for the security measures that are in place for IoT devices. So that when you're purchasing an IoT device, when you're considering it, you'll have a list of the best practices that were taken. And again, best practices here, we try to avoid that, but that's what they're going for. Best practices, if it has default passwords or not, if it's updatable, if th those types of things. Um, again, the devil might be in the details in this one because for two reasons. First, 
there isn't a defined list of what's going to go into that label yet. And according to the initiative, it's going to be something that's going to be discussed with the industry at large. So it might take some time before that's finalized. And then you can look at something like this, like a, a menu for an attacker. Okay, so if the device implements this, I won't waste time trying this or trying that. I'll just go for the things that, I, that are not listed there, for example. Um, on the other hand, there's the, the issue with the, um, the timeliness of the thing. If there's an IoT device that's sitting on Best Buy on the shelf for half a year before it's, it's sold, during those six months, lots of new vulnerabilities happen. The security landscape has shifted and what's in the label at, when it was printed might not be relevant at the time anymore. There might be something that should have been there and hasn't been updated yet. So there are lots of small details here around the, that label, that security label for IoT devices. But again, there is also the possibility that it gets properly done and it gets properly implemented and it will improve the security of the devices. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I feel like it's promising and I, I hope that's the case. I, I just worry when, you know, when you say, you know, get, throw, you know, just putting this on the industry at large to have their input, you know, I, I feel like that's often where things stall. You know, when you have TLS levels being deprecated or something like that, um, you know, those types of things take a long time because it constitutes a lot of work and they'll have different opinions and things and sometimes that could stall things. I hope that doesn't happen here. Um, and I do hope there's a lot of visibility into what the ingredients are, so to speak, what's going to go in the label so we could have more information about um, how we feel about this. Because I feel like right now we, we really can't develop much of an opinion because we really don't know what's going to happen or what's going to be on that. We could probably get some ideas and things, but we... Ideally... Ideally, yeah. for the enterprise aspect of this, it would make it easier for you to choose the right IoT device for your environment. Because say that you're using a specific encryption layer or you're using a specific protocol to, to manage your IoT device. It, it, this is an easy way to compare to different devices. Because right now, each manufacturer is free to, to create the, the spec sheet as it fits. So it doesn't need to mention this or that or the other. It just mentions whatever marketing points they want to mention. Whatever that device is good at is what's going to be shown in the spec sheet. So it's not easy to compare two devices like that. If there is a standardized label that they need to, to comply with, then that makes it easier and that will, help, that will help you make the right decision for your environment. But again, depends on how this actually gets implemented. Like you said, if you give too much free reign to the industry on this, it will just be whatever they want it to be. So it might just end up catering to them rather than the end users or the end companies that will actually acquire the devices. Right. And one example of this could be um, forced um, deprecation of hardware, meaning like, you know, how you have to buy the newest and greatest thing, right? You have to buy the latest model. So I would wish that the label would have something on there that says supported until and then a year. So you know how, how long you'll have to get security updates on the device. But then, like you said, that could be used against us because then if the you know manufacturer was going to support something hypothetically here, this is just complete conjecture. If they say four years, that's pretty good. But then will some provider say, actually, we're not going to support it for four years. If we have to put it on the label, we'll just do it for two, which will mean people will buy more things. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen, but um, I, I guess it's just really hard to know. I, I just can't wait to see what the final... Um, Thing looks like so we could really understand yeah. what the requirements are and then we could come back and give an opinion about how strong or weak we actually think this effort is going to be yeah. 
And the sooner the better. I, I didn't see an exact timeline for this to be implemented, but yeah, if this can be filled like next week, it should, it would be great. Um, but it's probably going to take years until we finally see it. Um, the last it's like thing any that, IT project, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just takes basically. a long time. Yeah. Um, the final thing that I that drew my eye on that on that initiative, and again I'm go, glancing over and skimming the the parts that are just US specific focused because the podcast has a reach that's global. We don't just want to focus on US things in these specific type of initiatives. Just the things that will more quickly escalate and move out of the the US and be uh, available elsewhere. And one of the things that will actually help. And it's US focused, but it will help everybody, is increasing the education level around cybersecurity. From the description, this looks like something that uh, is going to be taught earlier at school kids and at, the, at, earlier, at earlier stages of the education process. And again, I've said this before, I know some people don't agree. Um, I've actually received some, some comments about this and from people who think this is I'm completely wrong, but cybersecurity is first and foremost a people's problem. Um, this is not just a technology problem. You can have the best technology in the world. If your users make a, an idiotic mistake, you're going to be in trouble regardless. Um, so educating people sooner, making them aware of their security best practices around passwords, authentication, not reusing passwords on different websites, making sure the passwords are complex enough, making sure that they should be changing them when you know, the, the usual stuff that we keep mentioning, using multi-factor authentication, using security tokens instead of passwords, those types of things that are not so complex that can be actually taught to kids in school and the, from their exposure to technology they are already aware that these mechanisms exist so it's just a way of making it more safe for them at their age and so hopefully something that carries over to adulthood and when they go, go into an employment at a company so and so it will help them position themselves better towards security yeah um, so that emphasis on cybersecurity awareness and education, I find it very, very appealing. I really do, because I feel like if we don't have something like this, we're creating a culture of clicking next, 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 yes, finish to everything that shows up on the screen without even reading anything that's on there, not even reading or even skimming a license agreement, not even understanding uh, what the software wants to do or what it's bringing along with it. Um, I, I, I just squirm anytime I just walk by a computer user who, who's, who's not like us, obviously, or the listeners of this podcast, and, you know, an installation wizard comes up and they're like, next, 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 so quickly that they can't even possibly have known what it's trying to do to their system. And now with, you know, children being so into technology at a level that just baffles me, that's such a polar opposite of how I was when I was a child, it's um, that next, next, next finish mentality could easily already be a problem in the next generation because we didn't have something like this. And I feel like it's important. And I also feel like if you take a, take the people problem out of security, threat actors are going to have a lot harder of a time getting into things because that's a, um, I think the statistics don't lie. You look at how often phishing scams work. I mean, that really tells you everything you need to know. So we yeah, need absolutely. things like this. And I mean, I'm speaking against myself here and against TechScare here because we do sell stuff that helps you increase your security positioning and awareness and all of that. But again, everything can be defeated by a user clicking an email link. 
um, best protection, best firewalls, everything good in place. Somebody receives an email claiming to be from support, you click it and the company is owned. Um, we've seen this happen, <laughs> Rockstar, we've seen this happen, Uber. <laughs> I mean, the latest hacks that we've discussed in the podcast have been exactly this. So, yeah, it's not something that you can fix by just throwing more layers of security at the problem. You need to make people aware of the security risks and the risk that they get their companies in when they don't follow best practices. So, again, doing this at an earlier stage in life will probably help enhance security for the enterprise after a few years down the road. So, yeah, it's good It's good to see this actually written down in policy and written down as an actual goal for, for a government-level agency. Um, so, fingers crossed that this works out. Yeah, and, and one quick aside that's you just kind of reminded me of when you mentioned email, because that's a big um, you know, entryway there. I wonder how long, and maybe it's already happen, happening until like some companies just start banning email and just put everyone on Slack. Not that Slack is going to protect anybody, but, um, you know, I kind of just wonder how long until, you know, only the sales reps and certain managers have it. But then again, you know, we still have email in some form or fashion. It'll probably never go away. But um, I've already seen some companies start to hate email over things like this. But then again, we can't focus on any one thing because there's no one, you know, problem. Yeah. So. Yeah. When it's not email, it's the. <laughs> this is silly, telephone. <laughs> telephone, exactly. Telephone. You find somebody's personal phone number in social networks because they post it there. And you call them up and you say, Oh, I'm from the company support team. We found an issue in your computer. I'm going to send you the, the software that you need to run to fix it. And they do and they fall for it. And there's no technology in the middle there that can stop it from happening. So. That's true. It, it's, yeah. it all comes down to people. And even if it doesn't, people wrote the software. So it's, I mean, if yeah. you keep on going down the, the line there, it always comes down to people. Not that we're trying to talk down on anyone or anything like that. We're just yeah, looking at numbers not. and statistics. We, we, we're not especially talking down to our audience. They know, they know these things. Yeah. Um, but if they don't, they do now. So yeah, these are really important things to keep in mind. Yeah. And what you just said, that our audience knows that. Yeah, they do, but we live in a security bubble where we just hear about the latest and greatest technology and security and the latest best practices and all of that. Outside of this bubble, the real world out there, people are struggling with the basics. People are struggling with keeping their systems up. People are struggling with keeping ransomware at bay and all those types of nasty things. So just because we think it's very common we think it's very used we think it's very common knowledge and all of that it's not in the real world this is a real problem yeah one of my when i did computer repair services a long a while back actually it wasn't that long ago um because i can't do everything right um I, a lot of my phone calls were just i think coming down to training issues like i would get phone calls like you know the yahoo mail interface changed. I needed to change it back. I really don't appreciate this. New I'm like, okay, um, I hate to be the person to tell you this. You're not paying for your email, so they could change the interface however often they'd like to do that. It's, it's you know, on them. Um, but people don't like to hear that. But they also don't understand that because um, in their minds, we're um, practicing some kind of witchcraft or magic yeah. or kung fu or something, and yeah. we can make anything happen, um, which I wish was true. Um, we are powerful. We are very smart, but... We also can't force Yahoo to change their interface back or move the, you know, change the Windows theme because someone doesn't like the Windows 11. I ran into that yesterday. I ran into someone complaining about Windows 11. It's like, well, I get it, but okay. anyway, 
Um, nothing we could do about some things, but we can educate yeah. people, which is exactly what we strive to do. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Um, and what you mentioned a few minutes back about uh, phone manufacturers not updating fast enough and all of that, that's going to tie up tie into the, the next story that we're going to discuss. Uh, because just today I received a new update on my Samsung phone, my Android phone, and I wasn't really aware of any issues at the time. But uh, after you mentioning the, the second topic for today, I actually look it up. And that's probably the reason why I received this urgent update today. So... Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, I mean, and good on Samsung. I mean, we, we yeah. really do need to kind of shout from the rooftops when a company does the right thing. So if a company is updating something, that, that that's a great thing. And I um, used to be an Android user a long time ago. And one of my issues was that a lot of manufacturers just don't update things as often as they should and, and good on Samsung if they already have that out. So the second topic that we're going to talk about is Wi-Fi, which is extremely annoying. Wi-Fi is annoying. It's like printers and DNS. It's always one or the other, right? Um, you know, you have this awesome, powerful Wi-Fi router. It can't get through the walls of your basement or something. It's hard. But now it's a little bit more annoying because um, five security vulnerabilities were found in the Wi-Fi technology of the Linux kernel, starting from uh, kernel 5.1 and 5.2. I believe that was 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So... Basically, what happened is that um, there was a vulnerability found by an individual, and I hope I'm saying this right, from the Technical University of Darmstadt. I think that's right. Um, and basically, according to my notes here, um, and I'll leave the article in the show notes as usual, there was a buffer overwrite in the Linux kernel. Um, it's called the Mac 802.11 Wi-Fi framework, which can be, um, in, in quote, basically it misuses WLAN frames. And what that means is that allows a threat actor to utilize that. But in the process of looking into that bug, then more vulnerabilities were found along the way because it, it just led into that because you had somebody, um, actually is the SUSE kernel security team started looking into this and they had an Intel engineer looking into this. And uh, apparently the main architect of the Mac 802.11 framework um, itself was involved in the in you know tracking this down. And um, in the process of looking into that bug, that's when they discovered more vulnerabilities. Now, um, it kind of at first doesn't sound all that bad. I mean, it sounds, you know, bad-ish. But then when you think about the ramifications, it gets worse. So um, the article from ZDNet, which is uh, the main one I read for this one, um, is basically saying that um, this can allow the an attacker to, and I'm talking about the first one here, to uh, to crash the system or leak internal kernel information. Now, crashing the system, that's really bad, obviously, but that doesn't say remote access. And it also leaks kernel information. Now, is that bad? Yes, but, you know, sometimes that information can leak. But that all that information could be used by a threat actor to get a um, consensus of your servers and all the information that someone can glean is useful. It may not be useful by itself necessarily, but you add other criteria to it. If they know what version of the kernel you're running, then they all automatically know what vulnerabilities you might be subjected to or, or vulnerable against. Um, but there's other vulnerabilities here, and this is where we get into the um, vulnerability chaining thing that I often bring up because at first somebody could pass this off that they don't care. It's, it's not remote access. Well, it kind of is because these things combine, that's what happens. But when you have access points sending beacon frames that basically say, hey, I'm an access point. If you have Wi-Fi, 
come try and join me. I, I'm right here. I'm ready for you. That's basically what they say. That's why when you open your phone or your laptop and you check your Wi-Fi list, you can see access points because there's beacon frames being sent out that basically say, hey, I'm here. Um, and my understanding and, and my understanding of kernel programming on the Wi-Fi stack is not as good as, you know, the user level on the Wi-Fi stack because who understands Wi-Fi, right? Um, but basically this is going to allow people to just, you know, wreak havoc and they can combine these in, and I'm not sure what exactly they could do with it yet because it's still early days, but the good news is that it's been patched already. And, you know, to your point, you just got a patch on your end. So uh, patch your kernel. I, I feel like we say that a lot, but it's very important, especially when you have this, it's kernel 5.1 and 5.2. So it's not as bad as some of the vulnerabilities that we might say, I don't know, started with the 4.0 kernel as some of these vulnerabilities have been like on notice for an egregious number of years. Yeah. But then again, you know, from 2019 until now, that's plenty of time for kernels 5.1 and 5.2 to circulate into the distros and be pretty widespread. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually, that's a pretty big footprint. So and being, deployed on, and being deployed on a series of phones, for example, on a specific type of phone that doesn't have updates because it's already outdated because phones change every year because they want you to buy a new one. Um, yeah, that happens. Um, consider this scenario. So on this specific bug, you don't actually need to join the, the access point network. You just need to listen to the beacon frame. Okay, so if your phone has Wi-Fi enabled and it's listing the, the available networks around it, it's vulnerable to this. Um, consider you taking a modified phone or a phone running Linux and running this attack to a packed stadium with thousands of people around you. You can crash all of their phones at the same time. Yep. Or, I mean, even worse, I mean, think about parking lot hacking. You don't even have to be let in the door. You don't even have to have a phishing scam. I mean, you can literally just park your car close enough to where you're getting some of the Wi-Fi from the company and yeah. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this attack... Okay, two things. There's already proof of concept that was published to the kernel mailing list. So there's already an explanation of how to exploit this, how to trigger it to make sure that your system is vulnerable or patched already or not. Um, so there is already code in the wild to, to go after this. Um, second, this type of vulnerabilities will usually lead to something more dangerous down the line because as people look at the code and and work with the exploit, the proof of concept code and all of that. People are very crafty when they're trying to find this type of thing. So it's likely that the, 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 the danger here will escalate over the next few days. Um, another very interesting thing is something that you said right at the start when describing this. There was an initial bug, and then when people started looking at it, they found other vulnerabilities around this. This ties directly into what I keep hammering about just because the code is open doesn't mean that people are looking at it. And as soon as you get eyes on a specific portion of the code, you will find bugs in it. And this has been proven repeatedly over time. As soon as we try to fix a bug, as soon as someone comes up with a bug in a specific portion of the code, a specific function or something like that, and they draw, they shine a light on top of it, other people are drawn to it and start looking at it and start poking and prodding and more bugs will emerge. This happens every single time. So one bug turned into five bugs and this is what happens every single time. And 
there's no guarantee that the the ones that come after are weaker or lower lower risk than the first one. It's just the the luck of the draw. <laughs> Something nastier might be found just because somebody found the initial one. And again, just because it was open, just because it was in the kernel, which has lots of attention, it's probably the project with the most number of committers and the most number of people interested in making sure that it works perfectly fine, and still this type of things happen. So again, just because it's open doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't translate in being secure because people are watching it. Yeah, I feel like open source is a is a benefit at a minimum, but like you said, it's not going to make anything happen because, I mean, you have to notice the problem. Otherwise, maybe someone else is noticing the problem, but not telling anybody. I mean, how, I mean, for all I know, when you go to a security conference, maybe they're using these vulnerabilities, you know, yeah. when, you're, when you're in the, yeah. you know, you're doing a, or attending a panel and you're just maybe writing some notes on your phone and your phone gets taken over. Maybe that's what they were using for a while. Who knows? But um, we know about it now and there's patches, but we also, um, I mean, there's always a possibility that some people were utilizing this before we found it, just like any other vulnerability out there. So, um, Open source has a lot of benefits, like you said, but it doesn't make your code um, great. In fact, the article alleges, and I'm not really sure if I agree with this part. Um, I mean, I, I agree with the fact that, you know, an uh, issue in C code was found. It was written in C. I mean, that's fact. But they go on to say that um, this is a good thing um, recently that um, Rust was allowed into the Linux kernel because that'll solve this. And I'm thinking, will it? Um, don't get me wrong. I know there's a lot of um, enthusiasm around, around Rust, and I'm sure it's a great language, but no language is perfect. If you make a mistake, maybe you won't make this mistake as easily, but there's other mistakes to be made. So I'm not really sure I agree with Rust being the answer to everything. Um, it would be nice if that was the case, but I really don't think there ever will be an answer to everything. And maybe it is a better language. I'm not a developer, so um, I can't really say, but um, issues happen. You know, the the thing with Rust there is that the people defending Rust will immediately come out and say, okay, but we would never have a problem with memory management because Rust doesn't do it this way. So you're not responsible for freeing your memory and all of that. The language does that, um, and that's great. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Um, until you actually want to work with naked pointers and you actually want to use the the functionalities that C give you. Um, there is also some articles that point out that uh, Linus Torvald himself is partially to, to blame for bugs like this because he has over the years refused to use, first refused to include Rust years ago and refused to add some specific compilation flags and all of that because he said it wasn't useful. People should just write better code. Absolutely agree with him on this one. Yeah, and people wonder um, why he's bitter sometimes. Yeah. With all that scrutiny <laughs> that comes towards his direction. Yeah. Not that I um, am defending his previous actions at all, but it's true. I mean, um, yeah, exactly. There's some other sides to the story. Yeah, lots of them, <laughs> as usual. Um, but again, um, saying that Rust will be the, the savior of all of this is also not necessarily true because you would have to rewrite the whole kernel in Rust. The kernel right now, it's millions of lines of code. That's not something that happens overnight. It's going to take years or decades to, to accomplish. Um, it's a start as soon because Rust is finally getting included into the kernel and some parts of it will start to be written in Rust, but getting everything translated to it is going to take a long time. And again, memory corruption bugs like this one, they're not the only issue. They're not the only bug that you can do. 
you can create amazingly great looking algorithms to solve a specific problem and they will still have an edge case where they fail that you didn't notice and that gets included into the kernel um, only to be found years later as something no something new that happens and rust won't save you from that but what if there's a vulnerability in the way that rust handles memory protection itself then that's everything written in rust you know that's everything at that point so if we did rewrite the entire kernel in rust which again is not going to happen anytime soon and then a vulnerability in memory protection is found, then we're really out of luck at that point. Then it gets really bad. So I feel like I we just have to be really careful when we call something the savior of something else because can it help? Absolutely. Is it better? Probably. I can't confirm or deny that. There's a lot of enthusiasm about it. A lot of people love it. But like you said, I mean, there could be other problems. And we have to be mindful that not any one solution is going to solve any or all problems. Like we always say, there's no magic bullet to solve the the security issue. If there was, it would be great and we would be out of a job, but there isn't. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we would probably have to change this to the uh, Rust podcast because there'd be no security <laughs> issues to talk about anymore. And we'd have to have something to talk about because now nobody has any security concerns anymore. Um, and personally, I think we'll retire long before the need for this podcast actually um, stops in case. In fact, it'll probably uh, be even more necessary by then, too. So, yeah. What what you were just saying about language level vulnerabilities, that's actually a pretty good point. Um, your code can be perfectly safe. You can have zero bugs. If the language that, that you're using has a new bug, then your code is no longer safe through no fault of your own. You wrote perfect code. But the the foundation that you're using the language has the issue so you'll have the issue as well um, and this isn't just a hypothetical memcopy a common function in c to copy strings around um, was actually found to be really really poorly implemented this is years back so people stopped using it and started using alternatives um, but this happens and this type of issues crop up every now and then and it's not something specific to c or to rust or whatever this happens in python this happens in php this happens in basically any language because languages are software themselves so yeah they will have bugs I think it's just I think it's just more important to just adjust everyone's mindset um, just to understand what's possible and you know we get excited about technology all the time because that's why we're in this field if we didn't like technology we would be doing something else we get really excited about things but we have to kind of like top off that excitement a little bit and be real when you know realism is needed which apparently is a quite often thing so yeah so basically i could probably summarize that entire wi-fi story with patrick kernel if you use Wi-Fi, patch it. Um, if yep. you can't get a patch for it, replace it. I mean, Absolutely. it's probably as simple as that. Running vulnerable code, then you're taking the risk and accepting the risk yourself, and that's not a good position to be in. Exactly. Yeah, we don't especially, want anyone to be in that position. Especially when exploit code is already available. Yeah, and that's uh, that's often the case, too. So there you go. Um, another episode, and we... we uh, and this one with Patcher Stuff, which I feel like is something we've ended quite a few episodes with. But there's a reason we're saying this, because that's how you fix uh, things like this. So that being said, that I think that was our episode. And um, now with all things open, it's still going to be a little up in the air. But after that's over, then uh, we'll be back to normal. So um, just wanted to mention that one more time in case you're joining later on, uh, depending on when you clicked on the thing. But anyway... Um, 
yeah, thank you guys for watching. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. Thank you, everybody. Until the next one. Bye. Bye.